This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 87, recorded on April 30th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with my co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Tim. Today, we have another special guest with us, Dr. Greg Friedman from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Tim. Very happy to be here. So Greg is a star in the field of phase one brain tumor research and has just had a seminal paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine that we're going to talk about today. And we chose this topic in part because tomorrow launches National Brain Tumor Awareness Month. Uh, And so it's a timely topic. Uh, Dr. Friedman uh, went to the College of William & Mary where he got his undergraduate degree and then the Medical College of Georgia for his MD degree. And following that, he did a pediatric residency at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and his fellowship there in pediatric hemonc, where he then stayed on as faculty and is now uh, the uh, director of the uh, developmental therapeutics program and a, the site PI for the network that Brenda runs, the PEP CTN. Uh, and so he's quite accomplished and experienced in early phase novel therapies for children with brain tumors. So, so Greg, uh, tell us just first, maybe some of the background, what led to this study, uh, this paper that you published, what sort of gave you the impetus to do it? Why did you get excited about testing the use of live viruses in children's brains? Sure. Well, when I first uh, was back, it starting up in fellowship, uh, one of my mentors, I had heard give a talk on oncolytic herpes simplex viral therapy. This is something that had been developed at UAB and uh, years earlier and was being tested in adults. And I heard him give a talk about that, found that uh, quite fascinating. And then as I was starting fellowship in that first year, when you get to see the patients and the significant toxicities that they're experiencing and the, especially with brain tumor patients, uh, the poor outcomes that many of the diseases that we see uh, the, the patients have with those diseases, uh, that you know, led me to seek out this individual as my mentor, Yancy Gillespie, to uh, discuss the, had they ever considered looking at that therapy for pediatrics and they really had not thought about that a whole lot. Their focus was adult high-grade gliomas. Um, So that gave me an opportunity to join the lab and look at the way, how how well this uh, therapy worked in pediatric models and then work towards uh, the first clinical trial of of this therapy in children. So can you tell us just a little bit about the idea behind it? Because you're, you're injecting a live virus into a, a brain and the virus is known to cause encephalitis. 
uh, normally herpes virus, right. uh, as well as cold sores for those of you who don't know about the encephalitis part. Uh, so that seems like a scary prospect, but um, why did you think it would be safe and why did you think it might do something positive? So uh, the virus, all, all the uh, genes have been identified for the herpes virus, including the neurovirulence gene, which is responsible for the virus's ability to infect and uh, kill normal cells. And so when that gene is removed, then the uh, attenuated virus or the modified cold sore virus can't in fact, it can get into the cells, but it can't replicate. Normal cell is able to shut itself down once that gene's been removed. Tumor cells, simplistically, they don't have a good way of shutting themselves down. And so the virus is able to replicate in the tumor cells. So it provides a sort of a targeted guided attack towards the tumor cells while sparing the normal cells. And then another really important part of that is the fact that the virus is is very immunogenic, meaning it stimulates uh, a robust immune response. And what happens is those immune cells come in to the tumor and first are coming in to remove the virus, but at the same time can start to recognize the tumor. So it's sort of a cross pollination where it starts to recognize those tumor proteins that have now exposed because the virus has lysed and destroyed the cancer cell. And so you can get the patient's own immune system to start attacking the tumor. And we think that part's actually even more important. So it's sort of this dual attack, but the, what makes it selective is the fact that a, the neurovirulence gene has been removed so that it can't damage the normal cells. And I noticed in, in the paper that when you looked for the, the herpes virus, when you looked for that cold sore virus, that you couldn't find it. You couldn't find it in the body fluids or you couldn't find it, the actual virus in the, the samples that you had from the brain tumors. Is, do you think that's a good thing? Um, it, does that mean that it, it's not causing infection or um, is that a bad thing? I think we think it's a good thing um, for a couple of reasons. I think the virus, you know, the, the, the immune system comes in and removes the virus. We don't think the virus hangs around for all that long. Um, in preclinical studies, the virus could be detected for about a week or so. Um, so the immune system will remove the virus and, and every cell is not killed by the virus. We, and we know that aspect as well. So really that's why that secondary anti-tumor immune response is sort of what we believe to be the critical component. Um, so when we looked at patient tumor tissue anywhere from two to nine months after infection, we saw a bunch of immune cells that there and we had treatment tissue from, or, or prior to the treatment, we had tissue that we could compare to, and we saw this increase in all these immune cells there, but no evidence of virus. That uh, leads us to believe that it's most likely that these immune cells are there to attack the tumor and not there just because the virus had previously been there. So that's a good thing. Right, that that that's a good thing because you're getting that immune response that that didn't happen uh, on its own. Um, the virus is actually generating that immune response, which is incredibly exciting. 
Um, do you think um, that there are differences between sort of the, the virus product, the, the G207, the name of the, the uh, oncolytic virus, that are, are different or better than other ones that have been tried in the past? Like what makes this one um, certainly in your study seem like it might be uh, hitting the mark, so to speak, whereas other ones that have been tried haven't maybe done as, as impressive a job? Some of that I think has to do with, I mean, there's been different viruses that have been tried or are being tried, different than just herpes virus. Um, as far as other herpes viruses that have been used, uh, there's been, you know, I think there's differences in the strain of the virus, um, but they likely can create similar types of responses. Um, they're both, you know, it really has to do with, I think, study designs and things like that that may be related to why there's differences sometimes. Um, but certainly between the different types of viruses, so for example, herpes virus versus reovirus versus a measles virus or other types, there could be differences based on those viruses. And I, I guess I would add to that that uh, the, the viruses haven't been thoroughly studied. So we don't really, no one's really compared different ones head to head or anything like that. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what the experience was like for the patients. Um, I, I think you put in up to four different catheters and had to infuse it over time. And what was it like for a patient to enter the trial? So if someone's listening and they may want to enter a future trial, what might it be like for them? And then and then maybe go on to tell us what the results were and in, in terms of, you know, how much it worked. Sure. So I think um, it sounds, I think it sounds uh, more involved than it is ultimately. The way it works is that first we screen the patients uh, after they've consented to go on the study uh, and make sure that they're a safe path for the catheters to be passed to the tumor. Um, and that's determined by our the neurosurgeon, Dr. Jim Johnson, who's uh, involved with that. And also this study was uh, opened and tr they treated a patient also at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital, um, as you know, Tim. And so once that's determined that there's safe path, then um, the following day they're uh, under anesthesia, there's first a biopsy to confirm that it's actually a recurrent tumor there. Um, obviously, we would want to infuse it if we didn't find evidence of tumor. So uh, once tumor is confirmed, then the neurosurgeon um, passes the catheters. And this is all sort of predetermined based on the MRI to try to cover as much of the tumor as possible. And, and these are, you know, this is not near as extensive as when the neurosurgeon went in at usually at diagnosis and does a very large resection. So this is this can be done um, with just stereotactic guided type approach. So it's it's not as involved. They're very small little incisions, for example, and then um, patients recover in the ICU like they would after any type of neurosurgical procedure. The next morning, we would check the catheter placements with a CT scan just to make sure that they're where we think they are. Um, at that point, the virus is infused over six hours. That's a slow infusion just to uh, 
with the goal of having it spread as far as possible throughout the tumor. Um, then an hour after the infusion, the neurosurgery team pulls the catheters at the bedside. So we just use a little bit of um, topical cream to numb up the area. And then the children are transferred to a floor bed and are monitored in the hospital for a couple of days. We had four groups of two doses of virus and then two doses of virus with a single dose of radiation. So those patients the next day after the virus infusion would receive the single dose of radiation. And that was being used to, uh, based on preclinical studies, which in, indicated that that increased virus replication and spread throughout the tumor. Um, so patients were monitored in the hospital for uh, two to three days and then would have an MRI. And then after that were followed as outpatients, we would see them um, on the, a week later and two weeks in a month and then every couple of months after that. Um, and we partnered with the hospitals because patients came from all across North America and, and we would partner with the hospital so that in between visits to see us, they would be seen by their uh, neuro-oncologists locally. The patients who had the radiation uh, in that cohort, had they had prior radiation and did that matter? They did have prior radiation. This was uh, is a single five gray dose, which is uh, a fairly low dose. It's a little bit more than we might give if we're giving 30 individual fractions, but it's still a low dose. Um, and we didn't see any increased toxicity at all from giving the radiation. And when we looked at the tissue, it's, it's hard because we didn't have post-treatment tissue on all the patients, um, but, but it appears that there's uh, increased immune cells in, in after receiving the radiation. But because we don't see any um, increased toxicity at all from it, the plan would be for the next study to include that single dose of radiation. Craig, can you um, describe you know, what findings you feel are the most important coming out of this study? What, what are the key things that you learned um, in, in this study? I think three key findings. First is that it, the virus was safe at very high dose levels. So we were infusing up to 100 million virus particles directly into the tumor. The side effects were mild and infrequent uh, related to or that we could attribute to the virus. And there were no serious adverse events related to the virus. So um, it, it was actually quite safe and in less types of side effects that we might see with more standard types of therapies. Um, so that, that was very important. It didn't seem to adversely affect quality of life after um, treatment. And in some ways in where you, you have to give drug every day or drug weekly, getting that one-time dose that was actually an enhancement of quality of life. So that was the first thing. Second, um, although it wasn't the primary objective, we we assessed the efficacy of the therapy and found uh, radiographic or, or pathologic, neuropathologic or clinical responses to the therapy in 11 of the 12 children. And um, the survival that we saw appeared uh, to be seemingly longer than we might expect for progressive high-grade glioma. So we know 
for children that have a recurrence with high-grade glioma. Survival, unfortunately, is less than six months on uh, in the median survival. For these uh, patients on the study, it was 12.2 months. Obviously, we'll, we'll need to check that in a phase two study because this is only in 12 patients, but um, it, it, that we didn't see signs or evidence that we had a more favorable group of patients or anything like that. So uh, we feel like it's very promising and we'll confirm that in the next phase of the study. Then the last uh, part that we think was extremely important was that there was this striking infiltration of the immune cells when we compared matched pre-treatment and post-treatment tissue. And classically, pediatric high-grade gliomas are what we call immunologically cold, meaning they have very few to no uh, immune cells there. And this is why they're not responsive to immunotherapies, drugs like checkpoint inhibitors, um, because if there's no immune cells there, then there's nothing to attack the tumor. But we saw this change from cold to very hot with an abundance of these tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. And I think that's, you know, could be the most important finding really is because uh, it's really the cr first critical step needed to have an effective immunotherapy is that there's immune cells there. Well, building on that point, uh, do you plan to do combinations then with uh, checkpoint inhibitors and other immune therapies in the future? Definitely, that is part of the plan. Um, the phase two trial that's being um, developed and hopefully will be open later this year um, is to use a similar type of design uh, with the virus and five gray dose of radiation. But for patients that um, subsequently go on to have an initial progression and, and, and that could be a whole nother discussion is in how do you define that in this type of therapy, which is, can be quite difficult, but checkpoint inhibitors uh, will be part of that, uh, part of the therapy at that point. Um, we'd also like to move this therapy up front in newly diagnosed patients. And really we've seen that uh, there's, we haven't found a tumor type, a brain tumor type that's not sensitive to killing by the virus. So um, we really are going to try to expand this into all different uh, tumor types. And Greg, with that plan in, in mind, and I, and, and I think that sounds fantastic, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges with bringing this type of therapy forward, um, be it both at the drug developments level or just implementation level um, and, and, and any thoughts of how to, how to overcome some of that? Uh, some of it is going to be um, the teaching that's involved to get, uh, so for example, neurosurgeons are not, it's not standard that they're placing catheters into tumors. Um, so uh, when we opened the study at Nationwide Children's Hospital, our team traveled to Nationwide Children's Hospital to spend a day there to teach the process um, because of that a little bit more complicated part. So when we open this to the phase two, we're gonna 
sort of open it in stages as we teach each of the institutions um, about the surgical part of this and and about the infusion. Um, so that that's one aspect is you know as we as we move it forward, getting more and more hospitals comfortable with this type of treatment. I think you know other things a challenge as I kind of alluded to is is just the learning how to measure response with this type of therapy. When you're infusing a virus into the tumor, you can't use the normal type of response measures that we're also used to where you just measure, did it get smaller? Because it may actually get bigger because of immune cells going to the area. Sometimes because it's intratumoral that you get changes inside the tumor, but maybe not changes outside. Um, and so it, it's, we find it difficult to um, use the standard measurements that we use. And on MRI, it can be difficult as well. And so, you know, these are things that we need to work through. And it's something that we're, work, we, we're also been working through with the FDA um, in terms of how do you move if, if this was a drug that in the phase two is successful, uh, how do we move to an approval with using the standard types of criteria that the FDA likes to use? So that um, that's something we've been working with them and things using new ways of looking at things like um, overall survival and using pathology to show changes um, as opposed to strictly defining something as um, a, a a partial response or a complete response. I think the best example of that is from the paper um, where we show a patient with the cystic changes in the tumor. And if we tried to use standard criteria for, and that, that patient is over four years out without a single other therapy. If we tried to use the standard measurement criteria, the tumor is 20% bigger than it was. But however, if we subtract out all this cystic changes, it's 40% smaller and the, the child hasn't had any other therapy. So we know there's a response, but we don't know how to define it the way we are used to defining it. A quick glance to the past. How, when did you uh, first start in earnest, really trying to say, I wanna set up a trial like this because I wanna give the audience a sense of how long it took you. And then what do you see in the crystal ball over the next, like five years from now, are we gonna be able to do things faster than what it took you the first time? And what are we gonna do? What, where are we gonna be with in the field then? Sure, so, you know, I think when I first started in the lab, that was the goal uh, was to move to a clinical trial. Um, but some of that initially was obtaining preclinical data to show that these tumor models were sensitive. Um, in terms of when we earnestly started, um, it's a good question. I, 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 I think I remember I, that far back. Huh? <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to say exactly, you know, because we were looking at another virus that's being used at UAB as well to decide which one to advance. And, but ultimately, you know, I think it was, a, it's, it probably was somewhere around 2000 and, uh, 13, 2012, 13 is probably when we were initially getting going with this concept. 
and then working to get an investigational new drug um, approval. And, and so those types of things took a while. And there was a lot to learn along the way. But I think, I think now things, I mean, things are, will move quicker. We still have to, you know, the, to move through the consortiums and get approval of LOIs and CTEP and all those things that Brendan knows so well through <laughs> CTN. Um, you know, whereas I might have thought, oh, we could get this up and running in a few months. I, I learned, it, you know, that it's it, it. There's all these steps along the way. However, once we get it open, then I think um, we'll be able to move fairly quickly because, you know, I think this is, there's, there haven't been too many promising therapies right now for this type of disease. Um, and, you know, we're receiving a lot of interest um, about it across the country and outside the country, uh, people interested in, in giving this therapy uh, a try. So I think um, we'll be able to complete a trial, you know, quicker than we were able to do it as a single institution or just two institutions. Um, and then uh, we plan, you know, as I mentioned, we plan to kind of on the heels of opening that trial, hopefully moving forward with several different trials. Um, so that that's the goal. And I, you know, we are, the, the goal would be that this phase two trial would lead to approval of the therapy and that's that's what we've been working with the fda on and that's also part of the part of why we don't have a trial already open right now is we want to make sure we get all this taken care of before we um start the study and greg that is so exciting because as you said there's so few uh, available potentially uh, beneficial treatments for for brain tumors in general, and particularly the high-grade gliomas um, in children. And I think this is tremendous. And we're coming up on the, the uh, end of our time. It goes so quickly. I, I, I'm always amazed. And there's always more to, to discuss. But I wanted to see if, if Tim had any last questions. Um, and then uh, I'll look, Greg, to you for any last comments. Oh, I just, well, my last comment is really just to congratulate you on this work. and. Uh, I think it's a big boost for the field. There's still obviously a lot of work left to be done and uh, whatever we can do to help you, we will do. So good job. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Yeah, and I want to extend my uh, congratulations as well. This is a, a very Herculean lift to bring a therapy like this forward. And I, I also really, even though it was not the primary uh, aim of the phase one study to have almost all of the patients that you treated demonstrate some type of, of clinical benefit, pathological benefit, radiographic benefit is, um, is outstanding. But I think more to the point, demonstrating the, the immune activation, the biologic endpoint is, is crucial. So I look forward to the next steps. I look forward to seeing um, seeing the trial, I think with the enthusiasm, it will accrue quickly um, because uh, as you said, there's not, not a lot of options and this is certainly uh, appears to be promising, but lots more to come to actually uh, cross that, 
with that hurdle. So, so Greg, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Tim, for co-hosting. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsompdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.